Good afternoon, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. By Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania by Budweiser, as well as Castro Motor Oil. I've got a jam-packed show in regards to all these different topics I want to cover, but just a reminder to everybody, the show belongs to you, so anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, please bring up, and we'll feel free to talk about it on the show. Obviously, you got stuff going on with NBA Free Agency, which we'll touch on in a little bit. Um, you got some of the things with baseball, buyers or sellers. I don't know if you've ever seen my opinion about it, but you know I'm not a big fan of that. I think each team individually should pretty much focus on what's best for them and not necessarily go into these media-driven, I I believe, like sectors. You're either a buyer or a seller in the eyes of the media. And let's be real, the media sets this up so teams could essentially do one or the other as a a means of control. And I I don't really like that, but that's for another day, another topic. The only thing I'm going to touch on first before we get into our series of different things today, like I said, we're going to talk about Eddie Robinson, we're going to talk about Ron Artest, little Women's World Cup, and a seven-year-old man running a marathon. So a bunch of different topics. Like I said, anything on your mind? In a world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, if you're watching on YouTube Premiere, you can throw your comments up there. Same thing with Facebook and Periscope. And like I said, we'll, we'll keep the show interactive. The In regards to the Mets bullpen, which you've seen, and I'm not going to make this show centric in regards to the Mets. Uh, I think some of my bigger outrages are what happens with this franchise consistently. The only thing I could suggest is if you want to do one thing, if you want to prove, if you're Brody Van Wagenen, that you care, that you want to know, without a doubt, to the fans, to the media, to the people that follow the team, that you're, and most importantly, to the players, that you're committed with this team going forward for 2019, going into 2020, you make a trade right now for a reliever. And a reliever that I suggest you go out there and get right now, today, is Felipe Vasquez from the Pittsburgh Pirates. And yes, you're going to have to pay a hefty price, but I suggest you take your number one prospect, shortstop, Andres Jimenez, and remember you got Ronnie Maruccio playing down in single leg, shortstop prospect in the future, just 18 years of age. Ahmed Rosario is your starting shortstop. You go over to second base, you tied to the Robinson Cano contract. You got Jeff McNeil, Jed Lowry signed through next year. You got a little bit of surplus there. You trade Jimenez, you trade Thomas Sapuki, left-hand pitcher who just had Tommy John surgery, and Tyler Bachelor to the Pirates, and you get Felipe Vasquez, you get Kyle Crick in there, you got two relievers who you're going to control for a couple of years, makes your bullpen instantly better, and if Edwin Diaz has options, you send them down to the freaking minor leagues. And I suggest you do that yesterday. But now, what we came to talk about today, talk about super teams in the NBA, and obviously they're being built left and right, not the prototypical super teams, right? You know, this isn't the Los Angeles Lakers, this isn't the Boston Celtics. In fact, if you look in Los Angeles and New York, you're seeing the complete opposite, the little brother per se, in regards to the Nets and the Clippers, setting themselves up to be very competitive and expecting to win right now, and maybe with the possibility of taking some neutral fans, some fair weather fans, some fans that may not necessarily be bought or have ridiculous loyalty to the main teams in your respective regions could possibly cross over. And the situation is a little more interesting, interesting in the L.A. Bay Area because you obviously have the Golden State Warriors fresh off of three NBA championships in five years, and it's set up to a point where, all right, maybe the Warriors take a little bit of a step back, no more Durant, Andre Iguodala is out. Yeah, they do have, you know, Russell, that they got, D'Angelo Russell from the Nets in the sign and trade with Durant, but that team's take expecting to take a little bit of a step back after their five-year dominance over the NBA. You could very well say they could have won five championships. 
in five years. It's hard to do. And it proves what the Warriors did really over the last half of decade is that you could have the most stacked team, the best players. You could add an MVP candidate to an already stacked team, and it's not a guarantee that you're going to win an NBA championship every year, let alone a Super Bowl, a World Series, or a Stanley Cup. You could have the best players. You could have all those players be healthy over the course of a full season, and it doesn't guarantee you anything. And the Warriors' window may be closing. The Lakers were expected to jump in. LeBron James signed last year. Anthony Davis traded for this past offseason. And they were waiting for that third wheel. Was it going to be Kawhi Leonard? Apparently it's not because he's going to the other side of L.A., playing in the Staples Center for the Los Angeles Clippers. And he's bringing with him one of the top players, maybe one of the more underrated players in the NBA, a star, but obviously not at the magnitude of a LeBron or a Durant or a Kawhi Leonard. But Paul George is a pretty good player. And you team him up with the likes of Kawhi Leonard. And I think that Los Angeles Clipper team is dangerous. And I think that team, you could say, is just as good as any team built with LeBron James and Anthony Davis and anything else you could put around them. And obviously you got what's going on with the Brooklyn Nets signing Kevin Durant. You know Kevin Durant's not going to be here in the first year, but you team him up with Kyrie Irving and DeAndre Jordan, and the players that they got over there around him, the players, the Spencer Dinwiddies, you know, the Jared Allens, the players that you saw in what was kind of an underrated series of events with the Brooklyn Nets, they kind of built themselves a little bit of a pretty good team, a little bit of a good team that nobody knows very much about. But my point about super teams and the way they're set up in the NBA, and it's very easy to put it together, you know, it's easy that, you know, from the player standpoint, their, their ability to control things. And I have a little bit of an issue with Kawhi Leonard, whether he's talking with Paul George and says, hey, I want to team up with you, not with your current team, the Oklahoma City Thunder, but I want to team up with you with the Clippers. And Paul George goes and asks for a trade. You know, Paul George had the opportunity to hit free agency at the end of last year or two seasons ago, two full NBA seasons ago, and decided that he didn't want to do it. And he ends up signing a contract with the Oklahoma City Thunder and basically decides he doesn't want to play with Russell Westbrook and Oklahoma City anymore, demands a trade. He ends up getting dealt to the Clippers, and him and Kawhi Leonard are going to play together. But what separates basketball, the NBA, from other sports is the control that the players have, not only with the money. You can talk about football, you can talk about baseball, and even hockey to some extent, You know the amount of money that the players make. And that's all true in all sports. But it's with it, within the money that these players make, they control the franchises. They control which coaches they have. Which coaches get fired? You don't like a coach. You could, you know, a, play, a star player could say, hey, I don't want this guy fired. And sure enough, he's gone. And the players you saw through free agency, whether it was with LeBron James and Chris Bosh going, teaming up with Dwayne Wade, the players get together and say, hey, I want to play with you. We should all team up. Kevin Durant's teaming up with Kyrie Irving. You know, imagine a dream team doing that, you know, whatever, 25 years ago. Those players had so much pride in what they did and wanted to do it on their own. And they took pride in beating the opposition. And that's why, that's kind of what made the dream team that fascinating. Because you looked at Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan all playing together. Yes, for the Olympics, for the United States of America, and with the opportunity to bring home gold, which they inevitably did. Those players didn't like each other. The last thing they ever thought about was being on the same team. But if those players were playing in this generation right now in 2019, Larry Bird would be teaming up with Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan trying to make the next super team. Those players took pride in beating each other. They took pride in being better than each other. And yes, the Bulls had their dynasty of the 1990s, but prior to that, Larry Bird had his time. Magic Johnson had his time. All the best players in the NBA took shots at each other. They wanted to beat the opposition. They didn't want to team up with them. And you see what's happening in the NBA, and it's like a text message or a phone call away. Hey, let's find some way 
to play together. Now, I don't like the, the implications of Paul George being traded from Oklahoma City. If it's set up because he had a conversation with Kawhi Leonard and they decided they wanted to play together and Paul George's like, ah, you know what, all of a sudden I don't want to play in Oklahoma City anymore. The city and the team that you just committed to an offseason ago. So that doesn't look very good. But all in all, the super teams, as they're set up, the players pretty much choosing who they want to play with, they have to come with more accountability. And this is the last point I'm going to make about it. You have, let's say, the LeBron, you know, Wade and Bosch team that was set up in Miami with the Heat needs to deliver a certain amount of NBA championships. And they got two. They went to four straight NBA finals. I think you would say that that super team was a little bit of a success. And I, and I agree with that. But these other super teams, as they're put together, the Golden State Warriors won three NBA championships, two of them with Kevin Durant joining the likes of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and you know Draymond Green. That was a success. Five years, five NBA Finals, three NBA championships, two NBA championships in three years and three straight finals with that whole group. That was a success. But you're looking at different dynamics here with the pairings that you got, not only in the cities that they're in, but the fact that they're both little brothers in the major cities that they represent. The Brooklyn Nets, unfortunately, are never going to be the New York Knicks. They're never going to be up there with the popularity of the New York Knicks. They're never going to get the draw, whether I, whether the draw of the garden, Madison Square Garden, is synthetic or not, which it is. It's owned by corporations. You talk about that being the greatest draw in the history of sports, but it's owned by corporations. And it's not a bunch of diehard fans that are coming watching a crappy team and filling that arena. That arena, the arena is filled because the corporations own it and those tickets are sold for the game. Yes, people end up taking those tickets and sitting in those seats, but they're not the diehard fans that are crying and screaming for an NBA championship. So my theory or my possibility is could New York, from a basketball standpoint, become a Brooklyn Nets town? Could Los Angeles, with the Clippers, the little brother to the Los Angeles Lakers, become a Los Angeles Clippers town? It's going to be interesting to see how that works out, but there is accountability here. These teams that were put together, Durant with Irving and DeAndre Jordan and the players that are there and the coach and the general manager all have to be accountable if for some reason the Brooklyn Nets don't win themselves an NBA championship within the next two to four years. The success of this super pairing has to work out and has to result in a championship and a series of championship appearances because it worked for the Warriors. It worked for the Miami Heat. And with the Clippers, listen, you can't go through the motions over the next couple years. Kawhi Leonard, sure, through the first year, can live off the fact that he won an NBA championship with the Toronto Raptors, and good for him. And I think that's awesome. I think it was great that they beat the Golden State Warriors. I think it was great that that team did for Toronto, which hadn't been done since the 1993 Toronto Blue Jays in Major League Baseball. That's a city that deserved the championship. And sure, there are probably some people in Toronto that are pissed off now. Kawhi Leonard's not coming back. You know, what do the Raptors look like in 2019 going into 2020? We'll see. And it's going to be hard to compete at the same level when you have an all-world player in Leonard who really played his absolute best last year, was the MVP, was, you know, was it, I thought should have won the MVP. You know, Giannis had a great year, but it, who had a bigger impact on their team? Kawhi Leonard did. He took a Toronto Raptors team that really was kind of meddling. It was a team that was good enough to make the playoffs you know, every year got destroyed by the Cleveland Cavaliers, a Cleveland Cavaliers team that probably wasn't considered to be that good. And he put that team over the top. But what he's going to have to do, and sure, he moves on to his next mission, but he's got to deliver the Los Angeles Clippers an NBA championship. And the same thing with Paul George. Paul George flat leaves Russell Westbrook and the Oklahoma City Thunder. The expectation now is that you go out there and you win a championship. You have a series of seasons where you're making NBA Finals and win a couple championships because the Heat did it, the Warriors did it, 
the Los Angeles Clippers better do it. Even going back to the Shaq Lakers teams and those players that you know pretty much jumped ship from wherever they went to join the Lakers and win a championship, the five championships that they won under, under Kobe Bryant, they won too. The Lakers won. The Heat won. The Warriors won. Now these next two super pairings that we're talking about in Brooklyn and in the other side of Los Angeles with the Clippers, better result than NBA championships. Or... It's a black mark on the teams, the franchises. Puts back the fact that they are the little brothers from the bigger organizations with the bigger fan base and the bigger reputation. And makes the general manager look bad and does nothing to help the image of those players that teamed up to get together. This copyright broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely free entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for a showing, is similarly prohibited. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention you know, the tragic and unfortunate passing of Angels pitcher Tyler Skaggs. And I was just as shocked as anybody in the baseball community. You're talking about a pitcher who's 27 years old and just pitched in a game two days before that, found dead and unresponsive in his hotel room in Texas. And you see unfortunate things like that that happen. A man that, first of all, was a husband and a father and a son, very young, still his whole life ahead of him. And you think of other sad occurrences that happened over the course of a sports season. You think of Jose Fernandez. You think of the accident in 19, was it 1992, 1993, with the Cleveland Indians in a boat that killed Steve Olin and Tim Cruz. Really unfortunate things that happen. And you think of, obviously, the value of life once life is over. And you are what you're remembered for. And Tyler Skaggs embraced and loved by the baseball community. And you think of the team that it actually happens to. And you don't really think about that too often because, you know, tragedies as they happen in a world of sports with athletes usually are pretty random. They usually are set up to be where, I don't know, it could happen to any team at any moment. And certain teams, in some cases, have to deal with it a little more often than others. But I don't think there's a sport or in a team in a sport that has to deal with tragedy or is put in a situation to deal with tragedy as often as the Los Angeles Angels. And you go back to their franchise as they were the Los Angeles Angels in 1962, became the California Angels, the Anaheim Angels, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And you see a series of events that have happened that have ended the lives of major league players during their career starting with the likes of Ken McBride, Minnie Rojas, Chico Ruiz, Bruce Heinbechner, Mike Miley. And then of course you think of Lyman Bostock, a star hitter who really kind of reminded you of Rod Carew during the career of Rod Carew. A guy just 26, 27 years old, was right about to enter the prime of his career, was a hitting machine. And he gets killed in Gary, Indiana, while he's sitting in a car of a bullet that was intended for somebody else. And then you look on later on, and you got the Nick Adenhart sad passing. You know, he's, he dies in a car accident. Not that many years ago. It's not like Nick Adenhart was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's still in the minds of a lot of Los Angeles Angels fans. And then you throw in Tyler Skaggs, and this is just a totally random act. And of course, we'll find out exactly the cause of his death when the autopsy results come in October. But man, you're looking at, and, and, and I, I don't, I'm not going to say that it really goes out to the fans, but you think of ownership, you think of everybody that's involved in that organization, the players that have played on that team, the alumni, the players that used to play for the team. Think about it, you know, in a world of old-timers days that you don't see as much except at Yankee Stadium, I'm sure you see some sort of reunion amongst players and former teammates. And they get together and they talk about Nick Adenhart. And now 
the, I don't know, the resemblance to the time frame and a team having to deal with a tragic loss like that of Tyler Skaggs at such an inopportune time. And any time would have been opportune, but you know, it's, it's, it's just sad to see, not just that it happened, but that it involves an organization that, I don't know, can you say there's a sort of curse involved? The amount of players that were active players for this particular team that end up dying inopportune deaths during the active part of their playing career. And on top of it, you know, for those that may for, have forgotten, there was a 1990, an accident involving a bus in 1992 that almost killed manager Buck Rogers, sent 13 people to the hospital with all different variants of injuries. Thank God nobody died there. But as you're watching it unfold, and you go back and you put one thing on top of another and on top of another, and once you get to the fourth or fifth different time, you have a sort of pattern here. And obviously, there's no way to justify it. There's no way to say, hey, there's some sort of cause to all these coincidental you know, tragedies that end up happening involving one team and one organization. But you think of it, the Angels, the period of the last 40, 50 years, have suffered more untimely deaths amongst active players than any other team, not just in baseball, but all professional sports. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste of smoothness and drinkability you'll find at no beer at any cost. So, I was thinking about this the other day, and uh, you know, Eddie Robinson, former uh, major league player, who ended up becoming a general manager for several teams, is one of the oldest living MLB players right now. In fact, the only player that is still alive that played on the 1948 Cleveland Indians team that won the pennant. And the reason that that was interesting is you had two of the longer curses in all of professional sports. And obviously one got a lot more attention than the other. You got the Chicago Cubs who hadn't won a World Series since 1908, ended up beating the Cleveland Indians in the 2016 World Series. But the Indians themselves are now over 50 years since their last World Series championship in 1948. And Eddie Robinson, the only player from that team that is still alive, but he shares the name with a legend and a guy who really doesn't get much discussion when you talk about his impact on the world of sports. And that's Eddie Robinson, the former coach at Grambling State University. And unfortunately, in the time of Jim Crow laws, which, you know, if you listen to them and you think of that time frame, if you don't get infuriated, there's something wrong with you. You know, in a world we live in, and we can talk about racism as it exists right now, and there is racism, there always will be racism, and it, it will never be right. But we've taken large steps now in the year of 2019 from the way we were in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and even in the 70s and 80s. But Eddie Robinson had a passion as a kid. After he was done playing, he played some high school football, he ended up trying to figure out what he wanted to do and say, hey, I want, I want to be a, a football coach. He was restricted in what his opportunities were because he was black. He could only, at that time, become a coach of an all-black college. And he ends up plucking out, getting the opportunity to interview and getting the job at Grambling State in 1941. And he ends up taking a program which wasn't very much at the time, at the time was called Louisiana Negro Normal and Industrial Institute. And they were looking for a coach, Ralph Walder Emerson Jones, who was the team, the school's president and baseball coach, ends up bringing him in, interviews him. He takes over a program that in his first year went three, five, and one, goes out there on a recruiting spree and turns it into a nine and zero season a team over the course of the nine games that didn't give up a single point. And Eddie Robinson's impact is certainly
going to re be remembered in the likes of Bear Bryant, in the likes of Joe Paterno and Bobby Bowden. Some of the great coaches in all of college football history have to be remembered in the likes, in the same breath as Eddie Robinson. And Eddie Robinson did things that you can't imagine any college football coach doing now. He, he mowed the football field. He taught both offense and defense. He didn't have a coaching staff assembled. He was in charge of everything. He put together game plans for every aspect of that team. He, he fixed sandwiches on road trips it, you know, in certain southern regions and southern places where the Jim Crow laws and, and the racism that existed there would not allow for restaurants to serve their team. He did everything he needed to do. Like I said, he mowed the lawns. He wrote a column. He taped his players' sore joints. He acted as a trainer. And it's the guy that doesn't get that much discussion. You don't hear that much in regards to Eddie Robinson when you talk about the all-time best football coaches in college football history. And one of the things that gets thrown in there, and, if, and there is a racial undertone to this, by the way. You say, hey, yeah, he only did it at a Division II level. He didn't do it at the elite of the elite. It wasn't a top college football program in the country. And I, I apologize because I'm about to curse right now. It's all bullshit. Anybody that throws any negativity towards anything that Eddie Robinson did. Eddie Robinson was given limited opportunities because he, because he was black. He was only given an opportunity to become a college coach at an all-black college. He dealt with Jim Crow laws. And he wasn't going to leave a program that he built. He wasn't going to go to a Michigan who may not have hired him because he was black. He, didn't, he couldn't go to Notre Dame who probably wouldn't have hired him because he was black. He took the resources that he had, which by the way, wasn't the same as any other white coach. Any white coach at that time had an advantage over him. There were programs that wouldn't have hired him as late as the 1980s or 1990s just because he was black. And I understand by that time he built a powerhouse, he built a reputation, he did a great job for that school and that program, and was a god over there. And he probably couldn't have been paid enough money to leave what he built at Grambling State. But racism held him back. And it, are you going to use the same kind of racism to say, hey, he didn't do it on a big enough stage? He wasn't able to do it at a big enough stage. Eddie Robinson was one of the greatest coaches in all of professional sports, let alone college football. He certainly deserves to be mentioned in the likes of the best of the best. And if he isn't, maybe you should do a little more research on Eddie Robinson and what he did over the course of 50 years at Grambling State University. Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Just a reminder, the past ball show is brought to you by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, as well as Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The Women's World Cup Finals coming up. And it's unfortunate. We could talk about maybe a little bit of sexism that's involved. You got world-class athletes, you know, playing at a high stage, never going to get the respect that they deserve, never going to be treated or viewed the same as their male counterparts. You, know, you think of the World Cup in soccer, probably the biggest social event in regards to the entire world. When we look at this little country of the United States of America, you say, hey, the popularity of national soccer isn't up there to where it is in the rest of the world, but the popular popularity of world soccer as it pertains to the rest of the world makes how much the United States cares about it that irrelevant. But you look at the women's tournament, the way it's set up, and, and I'll tell you, I'll take a similar knock over what I will over the World Cup as it applies to men's. You can't have rounds 
and berths and opportunities to move up in this tournament decided by penalty kicks. It's a charade. I don't know how you could have two teams compete with everything they got over the course of 90 minutes or however many minutes the games end up being with penalty time or injury time and have it decided over a little dog and pony show and a skills competition. You should allow these games to play in a sudden death type of format until somebody scores a goal. It's right for everybody. It doesn't allow for the team that wins to feel like they got a cheap win. It doesn't allow for the team that ends up losing feeling like, wow, if we got one more penalty kick, it would have been us that moves on to the next round. That's not what these players bust their ass for. It's not what these players give every last thing that they got for. They let it all hang out. They give every last bit of what they have in regards to preparation and leaving it all on the field. And why can't something like that change? Why can't you have a sudden death format? And I, I, I'm, I agree with su a sudden death format to all sports. Set it up for the playoffs in the NFL. You know, it exists in hockey, in the playoffs. It's a change from what they do during the regular season. Regular season, you have shootouts, sure. Yeah, you don't want to have ties. I agree, the shootout is a little bit better. You have one team win, one team lose, as opposed to just throwing ties in there. I hated ties as they applied for, you know, the better part up through the 1990s and early part of 2000s. But they're smart in the playoffs. They let those players play on the ice and determine it there. Who scores the next goal? If that next goal scores in one minute overtime or 9,000 minutes in overtime, there's a winner and a loser. And you have national soccer, which what it, what it means for the individual athletes that are playing, for what it means to their country, what it means to everybody in those respective countries. To have a game decided on penalty kicks is an absolute... Joe, and it tarnishes what it means to win a World Cup, whether it's the women's or the men's. And it's something that really should change. Now, I had a chance the other day to watch an interesting documentary. Um, I think it was on HBO. Really curtailed the life of Ron Artest. And Ron Artest was uh, you know, an outstanding athlete, Went to St. John's for a year, ends up getting drafted in the NBA by the Chicago Bulls. Has a long career, but obviously a couple things stand out. You think of the guy that changed his name, the Metal World Peace, but you also think of the Malice at the Palace. And it really, this documentary gives a good understanding and of what this person was, what made him tick. Something as simple uh, as a kid's parents splitting up at a young age can have a drastic effect on a child's life. And you've heard me mention this on this show before. The definition of a divorce in America or in the world are two people failing at working out their issues. Those people failed at marriage. And when you involve children in it, it has a chance to impact those children's lives for the worse. Sure, something could be salvaged out of it. You know, a relationship between the two that may not be together and living in the same roof, under the same roof. And it could be good for the kids. Maybe down the road you realize a, a volatile relationship, maybe with some violence involved. You know, the, the kids are better off not having that in their lives. It could impact them in a better way. But a marriage is a failure of two people to work out their own issues and agree to the bond and a binding agreement that they had when they decided to get married. So Ron Artest has his parents split up and divorce at a young age, and because of that, he has all this type of anger built inside him. And his father, you know, senses it at a young age. Hey, you seem like you're a little bit angry. Let's go out there and play basketball. And his father challenged him, and maybe challenged him a little too much. And the reason I say too much is because I'm sure this added to the anger that this man and this young boy had built inside him. And as time goes by, he keeps building up this anger, anger, but he ends up becoming a pretty good basketball player. He develops this type of toughness, which helps him when he's playing, 
basketball on the court, playing basketball in high school, ends up going into college and making it into the NBA. And he, he continues to deal with this. And, you know, it was a little bit of a disorder. At some point, he has to be medicated for it. At some point, he's got to be counseled for it. And I'm sure there's a lot of younger athletes that deal with similar type of issues that could probably watch this documentary and learn something from it. So this is a guy that obviously has all these type of emotional issues, and it applies to the basketball court. And you see, he's a little bit of a tough guy in the NBA. And it, you know, the documentary spends a little time talking about the mouse and the palace, but different things that I think if you watch what happened happen and what happened unfold, you'd realize that there was a lot that was missing. I didn't know about the relationship between Artest and Jermaine O'Neal and Steven Jackson. And the fact that Ron Artest basically turned his back on those guys. And for those that don't remember in detail what happened on that night in Detroit, a, a, a game that the Pacers, the Indiana Pacers, our test team, Jermaine O'Neal's team, Steven Jackson's team, of course, going up against the mighty Detroit Pistons, who the year before had won an NBA championship, but a very hard-fought series between them and the Indiana Pacers. Reggie Miller was still on that Pacers team. That was his chance to win himself an NBA championship, something that ended up eluding him throughout the course of his basketball career. And the Pacers fell a little bit short. That next year, they, they circled the opportunity to face the Pistons on the calendar and said, hey, we're going to go out there and we're going to beat them. We're going to show that we have taken the next necessary steps. And maybe it's our turn to go out there and win ourselves an NBA championship. And that night was circled. And the Pacers, the way they played that night at the Palace in Detroit, showed that the Pacers wanted it more. And they wiped the floor with the Detroit Pistons that day. It was a blowout. And he saw as players were being taken off the court, you know, Chauncey Billups, the only, you know, Rasheed Wallace, the only player that was a major factor and a major member of that team that wasn't taken off the court was Ben Wallace. And for whatever reason, Ben Wallace was still on that court. And he's probably grown a little tired of Ron Artest you know, hitting them a little bit too much and probably got to a point where he says, listen, if you hit me one more time, I'm probably going to go after you. And Ron Artest at that point, listen, you can talk about what happened later on, which I will for a couple minutes and I'll keep it brief. But Ron Artest knows only one way to play. So he's playing hard. He's playing through the whistle and he ends up hitting Ben Wallace probably one too many times. And Wallace storms at him, comes at him, says, hey, you know, we're going to go at it. And it's a little bit of a skirmish on the court. No major punches thrown. Wallace was a little pissed off, of course. He's taking his headband off. He's taking his armbands off. He's taking, you know, if he could grab a shoe, I'm sure he would have thrown his shoe at Ron Artest. He was that pissed off at him. The part of it that I didn't understand, and it was made pretty clear in this documentary, and like I said, I recommend anybody that hasn't seen it, it's on HBO. It's about Ron Artest and his life and curtails a lot of different things that happened in that night, you know, at the palace in Detroit. People are wondering, and I was up to a certain point, why Ron Artest is laying on the scorer's table at that point. And if you go back and you realize the anger issues that he was dealing with, the counseling that he was getting, the medication that he was getting, all kind of going towards the same point to try to remind them, listen, in times like this, when things are a little bit tough, when you find yourself going from zero to 60, you know, in a split second, and getting real pissed off, and getting mad, and finding yourself at a point where you feel like you're just gonna explode, relax, take a breath, put yourself in a situation where you're at peace mentally. That's what Ron Artest was doing. By laying himself on the scorer's table, he probably found himself getting pissed off, probably wanted to go out there, slug it out with Ben Wallace and maybe anybody else that was in his path. And he did what obviously gets portrayed negatively as we hit what we'll call the concluding point here in a past ball show. A couple more points we're going to hit up. do want to thank everybody for tuning in. The past ball show brought to you by JohnPiela.com. But 
what he's trying to do in that spot, our test, is he's trying to calm himself down. He's doing what in his mind was the right thing to do, to just take a breath, chill, and just stay away from what was going to be a major confrontation. Now, the fan obviously makes a mistake. He gets, you know, photographed and he's identified. He turns himself in. He ends up, you know, having to pay a fine, maybe serving some time in jail. Throws that beer, lands on him. Our test, as calm as he was, probably just lost it. And there's no positive explanation you could have for what he did by running into the stands, going after that fan. And what his teammates did, and you could say it was wrong, but Jermaine O'Neal and Steven Jackson did what any teammate would do to stick up for their teammates. They went in there with them. They didn't go in there with them to take on a bunch of fans. They went in there to defend their teammate. And this is the last part of it, which I didn't get, but I found fascinating, was certainly wrong on our test part for O'Neal and for Steven Jackson to risk their livelihoods by going into the crowd to defend their teammate who was wrong by going into the stands. Artest asked for a trade. He ends up turning his back on his teammates. And that's ridiculous. And Jermaine O'Neal had every right to not like Ron Artest. You know, Steven Jackson had every right to be pissed off out of what he did by turning his back on his teammates. The worst thing that Ron Artest could have done and did was not stand by his teammates who put their livelihoods on the line to defend him. Jermaine O'Neal got suspended for 30 games. Steven Jackson got suspended for 25 games. Artest got suspended for the rest of the season. And it was those were harsh penalties put out by Commissioner David Stern, but it wanted to set a, he wanted to set a precedence to make sure something like this would never happen again. And we've been fortunate, and nothing like that has happened since. But this was caused by our test. And you can say, hey, he went 0 to 60 from the mental issues that he's got, that he's taking medication for, and he's getting counseling for. You know, he just snapped. But he did the wrong thing. And by doing the wrong thing, he brought two of his teammates that were there being good teammates into it, cost them money, cost them Indiana Pacers team of that year an opportunity to win an NBA championship and then he turned his back on those guys. Can you believe that he actually made peace with the fan that threw the beer on him before he made peace with O'Neal and with Jackson? The story has a happy ending. It shows what Meta World Peace has done. He's done a lot for people that have issues like he had. He's donated a lot of money. He's spoken to a lot of kids and hopefully he's impacted a lot of lives in a positive way. He's forgiven a fan that threw the beer on him. And he's made a little bit of a stride to, I don't know, maybe make good or make the best he can on his relationship with Jermaine O'Neal and Steven Jackson, the two teammates that he absolutely wronged. He turned his back on two guys that ran into the stands because of him. They didn't want to fight anybody. They didn't want to go into the stands. They did it because Ron Artest did it. Because he was in the he was their teammate. So I thought that was the worst thing that I saw in it. But I think it's a great documentary. I recommend anybody that hasn't seen the Ron Artest story that's on HBO. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. So if you're in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, there's only one place to stop. It's called Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck. Um, Karen Mason does an outstanding job preparing food. Jenny, that their food is immaculate. Use all different types of ingredients. They they set up on uh, Aug Avenue in Scranton, Pennsylvania, a couple times a week. You can like their page if you want. It's on uh, Facebook. Two Ways One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Last thing I wanted to bring up. Um, I don't know if anybody heard of the Los Angeles Marathon and the 70-year-old runner who set a ridiculous record by over an hour and a half. Uh, I think the record was like over four hours. He finishes the marathon in two and a half hours. Not only that, he's 70 years old. What a great human interest story. It's set up for this guy. And then you find out that he cheated. You find out that he found some sort of shortcut 
whatever. There was no camera angles. He finishes, you know, an hour and a half better than anybody ever has in the history of that marathon. Found some sort of loophole. He cheated. Not only that, but he's found dead a couple days ago in a mysterious set of circumstances. And, you know, we talked about death earlier in the show when we mourned the passing, you know, tragic, unfortunate passing of Major League Baseball pitcher Tyler Skaggs. You know, this happens in a little bit of mysterious circumstances. And, you know, you'll find out it doesn't look like he drowned on his own. It looks like he probably was murdered. Maybe there was foul play involved here. And I think of what happened years ago when he had the European soccer player that accidentally kicked the ball into his own goal. And, you know, a couple weeks go by, he's found dead. Likely a hit was put on him. I wonder if a similar hit was put on this old man. And he say, why would a hit be put out on a 70-year-old guy? Well... I think there's a lot of people that are involved in all types of sports, all types of racing, and I wonder if there's any gambling involved in there. And you know who owns all the gambling. I'm sorry. We could talk about it in the year 2019. The mob still has some role in organized crime, has roles in all types of, of gambling. And if there's anybody that would go out of their way to impact the results of a race, and you could talk about an old man's race in California that nobody may care about, but I bet you, you can bet on it. I bet you can put some money down on it, and anybody that compromised the integrity of that race is going to piss some people off, and you'll wonder if there was anybody involved in organized crime that had a bet on that race that ends up losing money because that guy cheated. And I understand he was disqualified. I understand a runner-up ends up being awarded the prize. But that could have pissed off somebody to a point where he could have been killed. We'll find the autopsy results. A little recap of the show today. And as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Passball Show. Brought to you by JohnPeeler.com, St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Two ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. By Castro Motor Oil, by Budweiser the king of beers. Super teams in the NBA, you know, it's almost becoming an epidemic. Players are kind of deciding who they want to partner with, but they need to understand that with that, they better win an NBA championship. Not just one. They better do what the Miami Heat did by getting there four straight years of winning two. They better do what the Golden State Warriors did with Kevin Durant, getting to the NBA Finals three years in a row, winning two championships, and winning five, you know, getting to five straight NBA Finals, winning three championships. Because they're putting their own livelihoods and their own reputations at risk. The risk of the organizations, and as you see, two of the little brothers in all of professional sports, the Brooklyn Nets to the New York Knicks, and the Los Angeles Clippers to the Los Angeles Lakers. Two teams that have dove it in and decided, hey, we're going to build ourselves a super team, not just to compete with the likes of the big brother that's in our same city, but with all of the NBA. And I expect to see NBA Finals involving the Brooklyn Nets and the Los Angeles Clippers. And these two teams dominating the NBA over the course of the next three or four seasons. If not, that's a failure for those players. It's a failure to Paul George, to Kawhi Leonard, a failure to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, a failure to the front office of the Los Angeles Clippers and the Brooklyn Nets, and a failure to all those fans that were excited, that were fired up, that their team has a chance to compete at the same stage as their big brother. You better win a championship. And that applies to both the Nets and the Clippers. We talked about Tyler Skaggs. Tragic, tragic passing at the age of 27. The history of active player deaths involving the Angels organization goes back to Ken McBride and Minnie Rojas and Chico Ruiz, Bruce Heimbechner, Mike Miley, Lyman Bostock, Nick Gadenhart. And then he got the tragic bus accident, which, thank God, nobody died in 1992 that really seriously injured manager Buck Rogers. And he got a Greg Cloud 
that is over one organization that, you know, thank God doesn't happen to other teams in sports, but seems to only involve one team. Eddie Robinson, legendary, legendary college football coach. Of course, he left us, what, about 12 years ago? Doesn't get the credit he deserves. He's not up there with the likes of Bear Bryant. Why? Anybody that has an issue with that, you know, you wonder a guy who was limited to what he was allowed to do as a black college football coach. Jim Crow laws, racism, segregation, through all that time, end up building one of the greatest programs in all of professional, and I'm sorry, all of amateur sports. Women's World Cup, good luck to the women as they uh, get set to play the Netherlands in the finals. Please, think about this if you're soccer on the national stage. When you have a game that means something, please don't have any more shootouts. When you've got a gold medal at stake, let them play sudden death until somebody scores. The Artest documentary. Absolutely. If you get a chance, watch it on HBO. It's outstanding. The 70-year-old guy who cheated in a marathon in Los Angeles is found dead. I'm wondering... If it's proven that there's foul play involved, I wonder if it was a hit on somebody that had something on the line in regards to betting on it. We'll be back with you next week. Once again, Pass Ball Show. Glad to be with you. JohnPielli.com, St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Two ways, one passion, food trucks, Scranton, Pennsylvania. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. Hi, Daddy. Oh,